Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta thanking you for joining me on this uh, day after Thanksgiving. And I hope uh, you not only gave thanks, but uh, didn't doze off too easily from all that turkey and other food. What we're doing this afternoon, though, is meant to be arousing. We're going to be looking at how Mr. John U. Bacon coached America's worst hockey team. Coming up in the second hour, when uh, this the journalist, great columnist, John U. Bacon played hockey for the Ann Arbor Huron High School River Rats, he never scored a goal. But years later, he was asked to coach the team, which at that point hadn't won a single game in over a year. And they were proud to be called the worst team in America. Believe it or not, John turns them into winners. And he tells us how. It's a fascinating story. and I, I know you're going to enjoy it. I'll have some words today on seeing our work or trying to imbue our work with a mission purpose. I realize I've been blessed from early days of my Christian walk to have a strong sense um, of calling, a strong sense of mission, missionary purpose. Not everybody has that. Um, it's something they develop over time. And I'll talk a little bit about that coming up in the beginning of the second hour. I want to talk in the first hour with Thomas Kidd, historian, one of the best uh, of, of American religious history. He's going to talk about the man who you might call America's spiritual founding father. That's George Whitfield, the revivalist, good friends with John Wesley, good friends with Jonathan Edwards, the, some people call Jonathan Edwards the last Puritan. Whitfield was at the time one of the most famous and influential men in colonial America. Today, most people haven't heard of him. He was the leading preacher of his age and his writings, but really his example continue to influence evangelical Protestantism in America. Thomas Kidd joins us to take a look at the life of George Whitfield. But we're going to lead off with Peggy Stanton. And uh, we decided to put the gospel portion. We always look forward to this gospel reading on Sunday. We decided to put it into the first segment of today's program. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me... Peggy Stanton, this is our weekly look at this coming Sunday's gospel reading. It's from uh, uh, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. I'll uh, read it right now, and then Peggy will uh, begin uh, unpacking it for us uh, as she's examined the catechism. Jesus said to his disciples, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me. Ill, and you cared for me. In prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked 
and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of these, whatever you did for one of the least brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you gave me no welcome. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison, and you did not care for me. Then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or ill, or in prison, and not minister to your needs? He will answer them, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, Peggy, uh, great to have you with us. Strong again. <laughs> it, it's a, it's again a tough a tough reading here. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me uh, what you were uh, what you could pick up uh, through well, the catechism I, on it. Yeah, the catechism. I think it was uh, last week where I said uh, we resent every uh, went to theologians because there was not a great deal about in the catechism, but this. This week it's different. Uh, there was a lot. I don't know that we can get to all of this, but there were a great deal in the catechism about the last judgment. And um, I've, I thought, you know, since this gospel is so strong, a teaching on exercising the works of mercy as well as mm-hmm. being aware that we are going to be judged by our Maker in that last judgment, we should contemplate that. Uh, so I thought maybe we would review just what um, uh, the works of mercy are. And um, it defines them as charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities, instructing, advising, consoling, comforting our spiritual works of mercy as our forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. The corporal works of mercy consist especially in feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned, and burying the dead. But among all these, giving alms to the poor is one of the chief witnesses to fraternal charity. It's also a work of justice, pleasing to God. And James uh, is quite stern in this. James at uh, 2.15 calls us to account when he counsels, he who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. Mm. Good grief. (laughs) And we're all going to have to rush to our closets and empty out a few coats in there. We we do have, by comparison with the poor, we do have excess. We do. Mm -hmm. And I must say, that worries me a lot. You know, I I think it, yeah. our Lord does speak, as you and I have talked about. He speaks in hyperbole and so, but, uh, but this doesn't seem to be hyperbole. No, no. I, I, I think this is um, stone-cold sober truth, uh, and uh, it, it, it's clearly intended to 
bring his listeners up short mm -hmm. uh, so they can examine their conscience, examine mm -hmm. their lives, and... Uh, and their closets. <laughs> and their closets. <laughs> and reorient their lives um, mm -hmm. so that uh, they can serve uh, more effectively all of these who he lists as in need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and the, the gospel speaks of um, Christ coming in his glory with all of his angels. I mean, picture that, really. What an amazing sight that will be. Um, and this paragraph three. But you'd like you'd like to see it in a good conscience. <laughs> yeah, you bet. <laughs> yeah, you. Otherwise, you're hiding behind a rock somewhere. Right. <laughs> um, but the but the catechism reflects on the angels who will accompany the Lord when He returns, and they point out that. Christ is the center of the angelic world. I don't think I had thought of that hmm. before. That the angels are his angels. They belong to him because they were cre created through him and for him. And they belong to him because he has made them messengers of his saving plan. And to cite just a few instances uh, when they acted serving the divine plan, they closed the earthly paradise. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They protected Lot. Mm -hmm. They saved Hagar and her child. And they stayed Abraham's hand as he was about to slay his son, Isaac. Mm -hmm. uh, they announced births and callings, of course, the most famous being the announcement to Mary that she was to become the mother of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and then, and then paragraph 678, um, following in the footsteps of the prophets, it says, and John the Baptist, Jesus announced the judgment of the last day in his preaching. Then will the conduct of each one and the secret of hearts be brought to light. Then will culpable unbelief that counted the author of God's grace as nothing be condemned. That's that's mm. that's something to cogitate on. That. Yeah. The culpable unbelief that counted the offer of God's grace as nothing yeah. will be condemned. And you know how many times have all of us, and some people more than others, have just discounted um, God's grace. Well, the, the in Greek, the word for blasphemy uh, means. Uh, to count as common, in other mm -hmm. words, as not sacred, as uh, profane. Um, it's, it's, uh, and that's what this reminds me of, where you look at God's offer mm -hmm. as nothing, no big deal. Mm -hmm. um, he, he, uh, he offers it today, he'll offer it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that, that's a form of blasphemy. Hmm. Well, and then uh, how many times do we get a little nudge to do something particularly charitable? For instance, and it mentioned our attitude about our neighbor will disclose acceptance or refusal of grace and divine love. You know, uh, how, for instance, I don't know that we think of that as an offer of grace. Um, Someone approaches about uh, for for a favor, whether it's a, a conversation mm. or money or mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. 
and we get a little nudge, we should um, help that person. Yeah. But we may get may feel turned off, and we don't do it. And th- again, this is where Mother Teresa was the great icon mm-hmm. of ministering to Christ in his most distressing mm-hmm. disguise. Uh, and th- I think the, the message for all of us there, well, there are multiple messages, but one of them certainly is that when faced with uh, those in need, mm-hmm. um, it's, we are actually given, it's an opportunity for us to utilize the grace we've been given mm-hmm. to minister to Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us, even if we're engaged in helping out in various places, you know, soup kitchens, um, mm-hmm. uh, St. Vincent de Paul uh, Society, things of that sort, probably think that we're helping people, but we don't think that we're helping Jesus, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And what a difference that would make. Yeah. 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 Uh, paragraph 679 says, Christ is Lord of eternal life full right to pass definitive judgment on the works and hearts of men belong to him as redeemer of the world. He acquired this right by his cross. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, yet the Son did not come to judge, but to save and to give the life he has in himself. By rejecting grace in this life, one already judges oneself uh, receives according to one's works and can even condemn oneself for all eternity by rejecting the spirit of love. And when he comes at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, the glorious Christ will reveal the secret disposition of hearts and will render to each man according to his works and according to the acceptance or refusal of grace. This is stressed a lot about um, the acceptance or refusal of grace in yeah. in these paragraphs, and I don't know that one thinks of that. You, we think of committing sin, but we don't think of not accepting grace. Right? Do you think? Yeah. Right. And I think one of the reasons they're stressing grace here is because these passages are are so stark; mm-hmm. they're so black and white. Mm-hmm. Sheep and goats, darkness and light, that human nature uh, can become obsessed with this, and and begin to think that uh, everything rests on us to mm-hmm. you know to fix this, to do that, mm-hmm. um, and that's not what Jesus is expecting of us. He's expecting us to move gracefully. Uh, into this service because we are ministering to him. And mm-hmm. I think that keeps it from becoming uh, kind of an obsessive nagging. I mean, this you can, you can be nagged like with this stuff, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. There's, no, there's no end. I can remember waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning once and thinking I should go witness to my next door neighbor, <laughs> which I did. I went over did there, you? knocked on the door. Oh, you're kidding. No, no. He wasn't <laughs> home. <laughs> He wasn't home, thank you. Lucky him. Yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've, that's obsessed. I thought that me being compulsive. That, yeah. You know? Yes, I think. And scrupulous. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think when you um, begin to take 
God and life very seriously, you you have to be a little careful of that scrupulosity that can enter into it. Yeah. Um, I've had that I've had that same reaction to certain things. Um, it says that um, we've got about a minute, Peggy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a, way too much stuff. Um, I think I think what I come away with here and maybe you do too, is um, the stress so much in the Catechism about the fact that we must um, treat our neighbor uh, as we would treat ourselves, and uh, that, that that is where maybe the heaviest judgment will come in. Uh, we tend to think, oh, the person who commits adultery or some other perversion, uh, they're the big sinners. But if you read over this, those of us who uh, neglect our neighbor yeah. uh, and charity and almsgiving are going to be maybe even more severely judged. Well, they're lifestyles of neglect. Mm, there's it, yeah. They're not just a single moment of lapsing. Um, yeah. But, uh, d- Peggy, thanks. And you're right, there was a lot of material here we didn't get to. But uh, we'll have it available in the online, in, in the Crested Guest Archive for people, so they can follow up on it. Happy Thanksgiving. And to you. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Here's the new challenge. At least one hour a week in front of the Blessed Sacrament with the goal of an hour a day in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I had a guy come up to me and he says, Father, you know, I'm doing a lot of things. I'm, I'm in a men's fellowship. I pray with my wife every day. I go to Mass every Sunday and, and usually a couple times during the week. I read Scripture. He goes, I want more. I said, do you pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament? He said, outside of Mass, no. I said, I think that's the more. See, all these saints, these are the ones who surround us. These are the ones who ran before us. These are the ones who fought well, who kept the faith They would tell you, as would every single saint in heaven right now, you cannot run this race if you don't spend time with the Master. Whatever else we're doing, it's second, third, and fourth. First things need to be first. The first thing is to be with the Master. And the Master is Jesus. Father Benedict Groeschel. In the church, we speak of seven gifts. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, loyalty, courage, and reverence or fear of the Lord. When I speak about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and these gifts come, they give you the ability to go beyond your strength. If you're struggling to be a good person, a good member of your religion, you know it's a struggle and you don't always make it. I've been at it many, many decades, and I still struggle and trip and fall and have holes in my socks. Struggling to be a good person, something that we need help at. And this help comes to us by these gifts of the Holy Spirit. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? 
Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom slash webinar. That's catholichom slash webinar. See you there. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in, there are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In the years prior to the uh, American War for Independence, George Whitfield was the most famous man in the colonies. He's one of the most influential people in the history of American Christianity, and yet few people today uh, are familiar with him at all. My guest, Dr. Thomas Kidd, is a distinguished professor of history at Baylor University. He's going to help us get to know uh, George Whitfield uh, much better. He's the author of George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, We talked with Dr. Kidd a few months ago on his book, Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Thomas, good to have you back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. George Whitfield, a remarkable man. He was uh, friends with John Wesley. Uh, They were both serious uh, Christians about their faith. They had this group called the Holy Club uh, at Oxford. Um. Why do you think Whitfield becomes associated with the American colonies in a way that Wesley doesn't? Well, the most obvious reason is because Whitfield was was in the colonies for so much of uh, his preaching career, where uh, Wesley only came to Georgia once, mm. and very... Uh, <laughs> short and embarrassing right. in, in, in Georgia for John Wesley, who kind of had to leave on the lamb uh, after a very bad dating relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> and so forth. So uh, Wesley, just his impact directly is uh, in Britain. Um, Whitfield comes to America uh, seven times, um, which, which is an incredible number of uh, visits to the colonies from somebody who is 
based in um, in England. Uh, and in fact, Whitfield dies in America in 1770 on his last uh, visit here, and, and he, he dies in Massachusetts. So um, it's not only, I think, th- that Whitfield is in America a lot, but it's also that Wesley is hugely influential, of course, um, as the great organizer of the Methodist movement. Mm-hmm. But in terms of celebrity, uh, Whitfield, as you suggested, is just unparalleled in the mid-18th century. I mean, he's he's the best-known public figure uh, in Britain and America, um, period. I mean, except except I suppose for the king, um, but more people have read things by Whitfield, more people have certainly seen Whitfield than have seen the king. Um, and so Whitfield's uh, fame and impact is just uh, staggering for the time, um, both in, in Britain and in America. Now, what was his relationship to John Wesley? Well, for a while, Wesley was a kind of spiritual father to Whitfield. Uh, Wesley, I think, was 11 years older than Whitfield. Uh, John Wesley had already graduated from Oxford when Whitfield was a student there, and uh, and, Whit- and Whitfield became part of that holy club that was a group of kind of early Methodists there at, at Oxford. Um, and so, I mean, Whitfield in correspondence would even speak of Wesley as his father, um, and, and Whitfield had had uh, his, his birth father died early and then had a difficult relationship with his stepfather. Uh, so I think Whitfield needed that. Um, but when Whitfield's celebrity took off uh, in the late 1730s, uh, it didn't take too long before he was quite a bit better known than John Wesley. And I, I think that was difficult on their relationship, as you can imagine. I mean, that they could sort of go from uh, um, the father-son kind of relationship to Whitfield all of a sudden being the sensation of the Anglo-American world. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and you start to see tension emerge over theology. I was going to say, and they had it, theological it, differences too, didn't they? They had huge theological differences. And, and you get the sense that under the surface it was as much about personality as it was about theology, but it did play out over the difference between Calvinist and Arminian theology about free will or predestination. And John Wesley um, eventually decided to denounce Whitfield in print, mm. uh, and it almost totally broke their relationship, although they, they were basically reconciled about 25 years later. Uh, so <laughs> there's, there's hope yet, but, uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and Wesley ended up actually preaching uh, Whitfield's uh, memorial service in London when, when Whitfield died. Um, so that so they were able to eventually be reconciled. Wow, that's very nice. Uh, why have we forgotten George Woodfield for the most part? I mean, you don't hear him mention uh, Wesley, you know, because of the Methodism. Uh, and Whitfield, though, kind of disappears. Yeah. In, in popular, in popular American Christianity. I mean, the sure. academics know him, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he shows up in most every American history survey course and, yeah. and so forth. But um, I think that there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one is, you know, you compare him to Wesley, and Wesley has this great organizational legacy of the Methodist Church. Um, I always think that the three titans of the Great Awakening in, in Britain and America are John Wesley, 
George Whitfield, and then Jonathan Edwards mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. of Massachusetts, who's the great mind, the great intellect of, of the, the awakening. Right. Um, for Wesley, you have an organizational legacy. For Edwards, you have an intellectual legacy that survives in a vast body of writings by Edwards. But with Whitfield, I think his great impact was in preaching itself, in, in the moment of, of preaching. Um, uh, by all accounts, he's, he's one of the great preachers the world has ever seen. But the, the, the power and the, the thunder and lightning of his preaching are in a way lost to history because you had to have been there. And, of course, nobody's running a video camera. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. You know, I was thinking if we could just have a, a YouTube clip of Whitfield, yeah. I think we would understand you know, that be why great. he was so great. Uh, but, but he's not a great intellectual. He's not an organizer. And so that his, the power of his role is really very much in the moment. Mm. Uh, what give us some idea of his preaching achievements? How many heard him? Uh, you know, what were the what was what were the cultural consequences of his preaching? Well, he is a pioneer on the, a, a couple of fronts. I mean, one is that he would preach extemporaneously, um, so that someone like Jonathan Edwards would would preach from a written-out manuscript, or at least very detailed notes. Mm-hmm. Um, Whitfield had a repertoire of sermons that he would cycle through because he was traveling, uh, obviously, internationally and, and, and speaking. So he had a relatively short list of, of sermons that he had memorized and and could adjust to what's happening at the moment. And so he had no notes. He had a background in the theater before his evangelical conversion. Um, and I think he brought those kinds of techniques into his preaching. I mean, anybody who's preached knows that there's a theatrical element to mm-hmm. even the most sober kind of preaching. Right. But uh, Whitfield was quite dramatic, um, even going so far as acting out characters, the prodigal son or something like that. He would He would even kind of take on that character in his preaching. And so it was very affecting he was very, very good at it, um, at, at being um, emotional, but not, uh, you know, not fake, not over the top. I mean, I think it was very sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he was so popular uh, and drew so many people. I mean, it, that nobody had ever seen anything like this. And by, by the late 1730s in London, you're seeing crowds reported in the 30, 40, 50,000. Wow. One time in, in London, even 80,000 people. How could they hear him? Have come. Yes, it, I mean, nobody had seen anything like this. And, of course, this is pre-amplification. There's yeah. no electricity. Ben Franklin's working on that at the moment. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he doesn't have a microphone. And you think, well, my goodness, how in the world could all these people hear him speak at one time? And, and one thing I, I think we have to say for sure is that he must have just been an incredibly loud man Uh, (laughs) because of his background he knew how to project his voice distances Um, but I think the people on on the edges of even a 40,000 person crowd uh, you know they couldn't make out what he was saying Um, but they just wanted to be there it was such an event um, I think it, it's not trite to compare it a little bit to like the Beatles or yeah. something like that, the, the, the British sensation coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it, it brought a popular dynamic to ministry and preaching that was 
pretty new at 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 the time when so much of church life was very formal and and rigid and regimented. I've always been tickled by the idea that Ben Franklin had a great appreciation for him. You've written on Franklin, you've written on Whitfield. What was the nature of the relationship? Well, it starts as a business relationship, definitely, because Whitfield is always looking for the most talented media people who can help him get the word out about his gospel preaching and his and his meetings. And so when he went to Philadelphia, when Whitfield went to Philadelphia for the first time in the late 1730s, you know, he's he's on a search for who's the best media man in town and people tell him go talk to Franklin. Um and so Franklin realizes and Franklin had been hearing about Whitfield for a couple of years at this point. Franklin knew that this guy was a cash cow. Um, and 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 he he realized if I could just get the rights to publish his sermons uh, and Whitfield's travel journals and so forth, these will be among the the best selling stuff. And it, it was true. Franklin just made a phenomenal amount of money off of publishing Whitfield stuff. Uh, he would also publish anti Whitfield stuff. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he was happy to to make money any, either way. But um, over time, uh, they did become I think close friends. Um, uh, and part of that was their common experience of celebrity. Um, Whitfield became famous first, but by the 1750s, Franklin is very well known in Britain and America. And um, so they sort of understand each other about what, what it's like to be an international celebrity. But I think Franklin is also just very, very open in in a classically liberal, tolerant way about people who are different from him Mm -hmm. religiously. And so Whitfield would not pull any punches. I mean, Whitfield would tell him, you need to be born again, Ben Franklin. You need to accept Christ as your Savior. And and Franklin would kind of keep him at bay and say, you know, I I think I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's just a wonderful relationship. And even when Whitfield died, I mean, Franklin told people in private correspondence, he didn't have to say this, about how much he admired Whitfield and respected Whitfield. So I, I, it, was, it lasted for 30 years, and I think it was a close friendship. Hmm. My guest, Dr. Thomas Kidd, we're looking at George Whitfield, America's spiritual founding father. And if you say, huh, you haven't heard of this guy before, well, uh, you don't, you're not alone. Uh, as influential as he was, uh, one of the three great uh, religious figures of the First Great Awakening, uh, we're trying to restore people's awareness. I'm Al Cresta. More coming up. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. 
Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Why would God permit the devil to tempt his son in the desert? The symbolism behind those temptations as provided by the Catholic Catechism gives great insight into God's rationale. Jesus, driven by the Spirit, goes into the desert to live in solitude for 40 days. At the close of that period of prayer and fasting, the devil arrives to attempt to compromise Jesus' filial devotion to God his Father. Satan tempts Jesus three times, and Jesus rebuffs him three times. This is a recapitulation of Satan's seduction of Adam. Only this time he loses to the new Adam. It is also a recapitulation of Israel in the desert when the Hebrews provoked God during their 40-year sojourn. In contrast, Jesus is totally obedient to his Father's will. Jesus' victory over temptation is a prelude to his victory over sin on the cross. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. St. John Bosco taught his followers that it wasn't enough to stop their students' bad behavior. Good discipline teaches children to want to make choices that please the Lord. If your child is behaving badly, chances are they either don't know how to meet a particular need appropriately, or they don't know how to apply the lessons you've taught them to a new, challenging situation. To practice good discipleship discipline, take a moment to find out what your child was trying to do by acting that way. Then teach them healthier, godlier ways to meet that need. Taking this approach will help your kids know that they can count on you to help them be their best when they're feeling and acting their worst. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Thomas Kidd, the author most recently of George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. Uh, We are trying to assess, uh, get a real feel for this man's significance. Um, He was, uh, he died in 1770. And so where where were his peak years? Well, it really the late 1730s and early 1740s which of course coincides with um the the great upsurge of the first great awakening mm-hmm. which which is uh, as much of a british uh, movement as it is american and i mean it's kind of a you know chicken and egg thing and about what you think about the providence of god working in the first great awakening but there's no doubt that whitfield's preaching 
um, is the most widely known and sensational aspect of the First Great Awakening in Britain and in America. Does he... Does he help, does his celebrity help unite the experience of the colonists? This is a a major question in the literature on George Whitfield and the, and the Great Awakening, okay. and what the Great Awakening has to do with American culture on the eve of the American Revolution. Right. Um, I think that there is no doubt that uh, the American people the colonists in the 1740s had never had a shared experience like what they do um, by hearing and reading uh, Whitfield. Because probably by the end, we could estimate that of the white colonists, probably something like three quarters of them had heard Whitfield speak in person. Wow. Uh, by the end of Whitfield's life, Amazing. Um, it's tough to imagine. I mean, it, it, you know, of course, we're not talking about the the numbers of people uh, back then as you do today, but but still, I mean, to have that kind of uniform religious experience, cultural experience, and people have different reactions to him. Some rejected his message, some ex- accepted it. But just having heard Whitfield is is an amazing conditioning kind of effect on the colonies. Uh, and so some people have said what the Great Awakening was about and what George Whitfield was about very much undergirded uh, the development of the American culture that's that's more unified and maybe ready for the for the revolution. I, I think one of the problems with that is that Whitfield draws uh, huge crowds in England and Scotland and Wales too. So um, it's as much of an Anglo-American movement as it is just an American mm, yeah. movement. So, so I, you know, I'd love to sit there and tell you, you know, that, that Whitfield somehow kind of caused the revolution or something like yeah. that. But it's it, it, you don't want to go too far with it. But um, you know, Americans in in the era of the revolution were quick to seize on Whitfield, his image, and claim his legacy as something that was like that kind of founding father kind of kind of role. Um, and it's totally understandable because it, the revolutionary leaders, the patriots, would speak about the revolution very much in spiritual Christian terms. Um, the best-known Christian leader at the time, even at, at the time of his death in 1770, is Whitfield. And so you know he's going to get, his memory is going to get caught yeah. up with what the revolution was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Talk to me about, I mean, you know, Catholics and uh, especially evangelical Protestants today, while doctrinal differences remain, often uh, enjoy one another's uh, and understand the commonness we have in Christ. How did Whitfield, this is centuries ago now, how did he regard the Catholic Church? Well, he is very much a man of his time uh and 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 a protestant of his time and so because of that i mean he he at times will express uh vitriolic anti-catholic mm-hmm. uh, opinions that this is especially the case um because he uh, is so often watching wars break out between Europe's Catholic and Protestant powers. Yep. yep. Um, and, and, and I mean, he's even uh, briefly a chaplain to an expedition uh, in the mid-1740s that, that New England led out against uh, New France, 
uh, you know, going up and attacking a French fortress uh, on the coast of Canada. And and so when he's giving these kind of militaristic sermons, um, you, you know, it's just inevitable in the time period that it's going to be, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a strong anti-Catholic um, theme there. Sure. But he also, I mean, with all these people, you also see occasionally that they're reading Catholic authors as devotional sources. <laughs> so, I mean, it, they don't have it kind of all neatly arranged about you know you know oh we can't read Catholic authors and, yeah. and, and so I mean I mean but but he he definitely uh, is representative of the time that that can just be viciously anti-Catholic. Would you say Edwards is the same way roughly? Yes, Edwards is the same way, yeah. um, and, and and that's just. I mean, they grow up, and I mean, Edwards grows up seeing French and Native American attacks on frontier towns in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. I mean, that just breeds war tends to breed hatred about these yeah. kind of things. Sure. Yeah. So um, it's it's understandable, if quite unfortunate. Uh, Woodfield was uh, an itinerant evangelist, right? He was never a pastor. Yeah. Uh, he 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 was appointed as a chaplain to so, a wealthy benefactor in England, but basically he was on the move yeah. uh, all the time. Uh, I I was a pastor for five years, and uh, and I know from fellow pastors at that time that uh, there's a little bit of tension between the itinerant evangelist who passes through and uh, preaches, and then leaves you, the local pastor, to deal with the consequences. <laughs> Uh, I imagine something similar happened with Whitfield. It definitely did. I mean, you see the tension about um, many, many pastors desperately want Whitfield to come uh, and preach in, in their in their church, but Whitfield did tend to re- leave uh, wreckage behind when it went, because he, especially as a young man, he was. Um, quick to criticize religious authorities and would get into some really uh, nasty fights with especially local Church of England leaders, because he he is a Church of England uh, minister, um, but is not on good terms with many, many Church of England uh, uh, ministers and and bureaucrats. Um, And so uh, this would leave difficult situations for people, and uh, churches would split. Over Whitfield. Well, Should we have him here or not? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the all kinds of denominations would see church splits over Whitfield's role. So, um, and and I think that every local pastor will know that if all you had to do was preach, <laughs> you, you know, things would get a little easier. You right. Know I mean? and, right. And so uh, that that. I, I think there's probably some frustration with Whitfield at the time that well, you know he doesn't he does almost no kind of pastoral ministry, um, and and he can leave when things get difficult. So uh, there there is definitely that dynamic with him. Did he have a sense of uh, destiny? I mean, did he when he was a young man? Uh, you know, before he was well known, while well, he was still. Uh, understanding his own uh, spirituality, so to speak. Uh, Did he sense that he was equipped for great things? He, uh, again, as a young man, had uh, piety that today we would consider um, sort of charismatic or Pentecostal um, in the sense that he 
put a great deal of emphasis on the leading of the Holy Spirit and experiences in the Holy Spirit to help him to know uh, what he should do, what it, what he should do vocationally, and and um, what what next steps he should take. And it it, it was um, very important in his early journals um, and his and his autobiography uh, to him to to note that. Um, I mean, he was considering about whether to pursue ordination or not, and he had what he considered to be a revelatory dream about a meeting with the bishop, mm. um, and the, that in this dream, the bishop gave him a gift of a couple of gold coins to buy books or something like this. And he said, sure enough, when he had this meeting with this bishop that had not even been scheduled at the time of the dream, that the bishop gave him these gold coins. For a historian, you're you're kind of in a position. Of course, as a Christian historian, I'm open to these kind of things. Sure. Well, wow. I mean, that that either happened or that didn't happen. Right. Right. Exactly. Story dream. You know. Um, So, I mean, he he definitely felt that God was setting him apart for these great uh, purposes that he didn't even understand. Later on, he got a ton of criticism for those that kind of more charismatic piety. Uh, and in, even in later editions of his journals and autobiography, he, he took a lot of it out. It was, it was just too controversial by the time he had become, uh, you know, into the, the maturity of his ministry. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you have any idea of roughly how many people he preached to over his career? Or how many, how many sermons he gave? It, 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 the, the numbers of people, uh, Probably exceeded, you know, a million. I, I mean, it, w- it would be hard to know. I think that the number of estimated sermons, uh, a low estimate, would be about nineteen thousand. <laughs> wow. uh, and wow. and there were definitely days where he was speaking three, four, maybe even five times a day. Um, th- he was also, uh, from an early point in his ministry, he struggled terribly with health problems. Oh. I think that were exacerbated by this incredible pace that he was keeping up because he doesn't have a car. He doesn't have airplanes. He's he's traveling by carriages and horses, uh, sleeping on the ground and these kind of things. So it, he, he has to have been one of the hardest working preachers in Christian history. Uh, that That's absolutely behind it. He's talented and gifted, but he's mm-hmm. also incredibly hardworking. So the, the numbers are just mind-boggling. Do you think that he is uh, presently receiving the attention he deserves from uh, American historians? Well, you know, I wrote uh, this biography of him um, partly because his his 300th birthday was in 2014, and um, I felt like that there, there is a gap there, there were a couple of scholarly biographies that came out about him in the 1990s that kind of fo- one focused on the theme of sort of Whitfield and commerce, the other one on the theme of Whitfield and the theater. And so I thought, well, first of all, there needs to be a, a kind of more comprehensive scholarly biography of Whitfield and his ministry, mm-hmm. because that's the way he understood himself. Right, right. Um, but there, there are also these Christian approaches to Whitfield the, the, on a popular level, and I thought, you know, maybe I can bridge that. Yeah. I so, read Arnold Dollymore's two-volume work yeah. many, many, many years ago. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, so, well, I... I Greatly appreciate your work, uh, Tom, and I thank you for being with me today. 
and hope we can Thanks talk for again. Having me. Yeah. Dr. Thomas Kidd, George Whitfield, America's spiritual founding father. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. He's not on drugs. Parents will come into my office and describe a litany of trouble about this long. Then they'll say this, I'm giving you the wrong impression. Overall, he's a pretty good kid. How so? Well, he's not on drugs or anything like that. One of the new moral high bars out there, he's not on drugs. You want to raise a child not with the absence of pathology, but with the presence of virtue. She's miserable with me, but she treats everybody else great. Again, not the absence of bad behavior, but the presence of good behavior. He's not on drugs? <laughs> it's a rationale. It may provide some comfort. It's not a path to virtue. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, it's important uh, to remember that many of the most uh, prominent religious figures in colonial America were themselves anti-Catholic. I mean, you know, we can look at them today from a distance and see the many good things they preached. But uh, at the same time, um, they were, if you push them on, if you pushed them, they would quickly tell you that they feared popery. Um, George Whitfield uh, was one of the most important, and many would say the most important evangelist and revivalist in colonial America. Uh, his friend uh, Jonathan Edwards is sometimes named that way. But uh, Whitfield started out with uh, John Wesley uh, in the so-called Oxford Holy Club, they, together, and with some friends, including uh, John's brother Charles, they wanted to revive the Church of England. That was what they were about. Wesley came to America and was really discouraged in his revivalist labors in America. He went back to England, where he had very successful revivals. In fact, historians will tell you that the Wesleyan revivals transformed the moral landscape of uh, England. Whitfield, though, had his greatest impact in the colonial in the colonies, and so it's just funny to see um, how this 
weekend, a young man from England ends up doing much to create what is now called the First Great Awakening. Again, Jonathan Edwards is usually associated with that as well. But this First Great Awakening was a spiritual outburst. And there are many historians who think that without the First Great Awakening, the colonists would not have felt enough common ground. Uh, they wouldn't have the sense of fraternity that they did without this First Great Awakening. So, again, he's a fascinating figure, uh, and I think Thomas Kidd does a wonderful job of looking at America's spiritual founding father, George Whitfield. I'm Al Cresta. Stay with me. we got more coming up in the next hour. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me today. In this hour, we're going to uh, take a look at work. Yes, what we're employed to do in other forms of work. I mean, so much of our lives are taken up, of course, working. And there's lots of decisions about what to do for a living, um, the value of work, where will you work, the workplace, how you will manage your work. So many issues revolve around our work, and it's surprising how little serious theological reflection uh, there's been on work. Now, that's, I have to say that is changing. You can now find, you know, you look up theology of work, you'll actually find some, some books. But one of the most important texts dealing with, you might say, a theology of work, is John Paul II's third encyclical, Laborum Exertions. This was published on the 90th anniversary of Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum. Rerum Novarum was the first uh, social encyclical. Uh, it starts a whole tradition of social encyclicals. And uh, John Paul II's first social encyclical, Laborum Exertions, came out September 14, 1981, 90 years after Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum. Before uh, Laborum Exertions, we had... Um, Pius XI publishing on the 40th anniversary of uh, Rerum Novarum, and you had John XXIII publishing in 1961 in commemoration uh, of Rerum Novarum, and Paul VI in 1971 publishes uh, in memory of Rerum Novarum, and in 1981 we have John Paul II. It's a very personal document, and one of the reasons I like it is because the Pope's discussion of work is rooted in his own experience. It, it shows his familiarity with uh, working in mines and factories. It shows uh, work in, that he's done in artistic and literary uh, areas. It shows uh, academic work and pastoral ministry. And in fact, underneath it all, there is a long-standing debate going on between John Paul II and Marxism. So he does take up 
topics uh, like the struggle between labor and capital, uh, proper ownership of the means of production. I mean, in fact, he has in mind here, uh, most observers of this encyclical will point out that he intended this letter to encourage the Polish trade union solidarity, uh, which, as we've talked about many times on this broadcast, in the early 1980s was the primary motor for affecting social and political change in Poland while still under a totalitarian regime. And again, most historians will say that the crack in the Iron Curtain starts with the Polish trade union solidarity. And this encyclical, uh, Laborum Excursions by John Paul II, is in fact uh, a work that he put out there as a, um, I might say, a bit of advice for the trade union. And so th throughout, the, uh, throughout the encyclical, he's very interested in Scripture. He quotes virtually nothing other than Scripture in this, starting out, of course, in Genesis chapter 1, where we are told uh, to exercise dominion on the earth because we are created in God's image, and we continue his work of uh, stewardship in developing the creation. And uh, all human work is meant to be done under uh, the direction of God himself. Uh, in America right now, we have a crisis in human work, and one of the reasons we do is because people have forgotten God and his connection to their work, their employment. I'm going to take a few minutes uh, to, and lead off this uh, hour with a little commentary on our work and how it affects our interior life. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. You've probably seen those hilarious pictures of people who grow to look like their dogs, right? Uh, and it's a cliche that old married couples come to resemble each other over the decades. Not sure how true that is, but it's, it's a cliche anyways. I am convinced, however, that it's true for our jobs. We actually do come to be shaped, at least interiorly, by the jobs we hold and the responsibilities we shoulder in those jobs. And that means that we should always ask how our jobs uh, are shaping us. Uh, are they, I mean, we talk about this in terms of our entertainment, right? Okay. We should talk about it in terms of our jobs as well. Are they shaping us in a way that uh, enable us to love more deeply, to serve more broadly? I know that the jobs I've held over the years have shaped me and reinforced certain patterns of thought within me. For instance, I spent a summer selling roofing and siding door to door. <laughs> yes, I did. In towns around Kalamazoo and Battle Creek in Michigan. I'm not even sure if they do much door-to-door -door selling anymore. But back then, it was common enough. And to this day, if I'm walking to a residential neighborhood, I, I glance up at the roofs to see if the shingles look ragged or if the keyway spacing looks right. And this, the way that jobs shape you, and in my case, me, became crystal clear to me after 10 years of managing retail bookstores. I'll tell you the story on this. Shortly after my adult conversion to Christ, when I was still a student at Michigan State, I was uh, given one afternoon uh, in, uh, just uh, an incredibly strong sense of mission and call. And I knew I would spend my life sharing the gospel and the truths of the Christian faith. 
It wasn't much more specific than that. Um, it, 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 it wasn't that I felt called to the pastorate or into foreign missions or to manage some parachurch ministry, just that I would spend my life sharing the gospel and the truths of the Christian faith. But after I graduated, uh, married Sally, and had no success at all as a freelance writer, two friends of mine offered to train me to manage the Logos Christian bookstore that they co-owned in East Lansing. And they spent months training me in retail management and merchandising, and it was a gift. Uh, it equipped me for my work in other bookstores for the next 10 years after. And this comported nicely with my sense of mission to disseminate the truths of the Christian faith. Um, you know, I had lots of friends who were going to seminary at the time, but uh, I, it wasn't for me. Uh, this is what I had immediately, the task had been put in front of me to manage these stores. Well, after they sold their store in East Lansing, my wife Sally and I moved to the Detroit area to manage another Logos bookstore. And after two years or so, we ended up acquiring 10 bookstores that needed to be completely redesigned and relaunched with a new corporate identity. Eden Books uh, was the name. And I didn't find any intrinsic conflict between my calling to spread the truth of the faith uh, and my work in retail management. I was carrying out the mission of spreading the faith. We put a lot of money and time in creating a retail floor space that had plenty of room for uh, people to sit, prayer, uh, the fellowship, conversation, coffee, uh, browsing, reading. We bought in all new signage, uh, we organized all the book categories, all the fixture and furniture changed, and we were a very high-touch uh, retail operation, even as we worked at that time with the best inventory control software uh, that was in our industry. We treated our customers, we were all trained to treat our customers as though they were members of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, before they were customers. And thankfully, uh, the staff I had there loved the new vision for the stores, and so uh, they were trained and listening to the wants and needs of customers, and they were rec would recommend books in a way that a doctor would prescribe medicine, right? So customers, again, became friends. It was very familial, and we did our best to understand uh, business as ministry and serving others, and uh, we, did, we did fine financially. Now, obviously, a business must operate in the black or it will collapse, so it was important to do the work of retail, uh, con diligently control expenses, uh, renegotiate leases when you can, keep clean inventory, look at uh, turnover of the inventory. But the owner of the stores and myself as the general manager uh, saw eye to eye on the absolute necessity of the stores being outposts for ministry and service for those who came into the stores. We didn't just want to be selling material. We wanted to be creating a much more uh, a ministerial outpost, so to speak. Well, I continued to do the work of an evangelist in my personal relationships and with you know, new people I would meet. And on occasion, I'd be asked to conduct Bible studies or to speak on apologetics at local churches. But the sweat of my brow, that was running bookstores. That was my task. And then an incident occurred that over years made me realize that I had neglected an important aspect of retailing. A young man with whom I'd spent untold hours uh, helping out with Bible study, uh, praying with, um, just being a listening ear, came into our store in Taylor, Michigan. 
uh, one Friday afternoon. He was carrying Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming album. Now, this was the first of a few explicitly Christian albums that Dylan recorded in the late 70s and early 80s. We carried the album in our store at the standard retail price, but he was flush with enthusiasm because he had just purchased it for a dollar cheaper at a large retail outlet just down the street from us. You know, it's a place similar to what Target's is today. Now, a buck wasn't a big deal from my perspective, but from his perspective as a customer, it was enough for him to leave us behind and shop elsewhere, in spite of the amount of time lavished on him and his girlfriend as they hung around our stores. And, you know, um, I realized that customer loyalty that I had presumed existed uh, it wasn't really strong enough to withstand a dollar discount. You know, at the time, I, I experienced it as a bit of betrayal. But look, I was young. I finally accepted the fact that for most people, saving a buck was decisive. They didn't mean me any harm by this, but they would shop where they could save money. And my emphasis on service and ministry and the amount of time and money invested in training our staff and designing our retail space that would always be subordinate to their interest in saving money. No matter how much I wish it was different, when we were in my stores, our relationship was, first of all, customer and merchant, not brother and sister. Again, there's nothing immoral about that, uh, and I get frustrated when I hear so-called social justice Catholics look at business ownership or management as somehow tainted. I never felt that way then or now. Business is a form of ministry. It is a form of service. But I did realize that if I were to excel in my job as a retail manager, I needed to spend more time really focusing on buying and selling with an eye to saving my customers a few extra dollars. And that meant working more effectively with publishers and distributors to buy in greater volume, get them to pay the shipping costs, make sure that our Christmas inventory was nailed down in July because that was when wholesale discounts were the greatest. I was already doing much of that, but it wasn't the priority that it would be, need to be in the future. The reason I knew this is because a, a friendly acquaintance of mine, not quite a friend, but a friendly acquaintance of mine, was the general manager of a competing chain of stores. And we, we talked you know, now and then, and uh, we often compared notes about publishers and authors and trends, uh, different Christian events. And he loved the challenge of buying and selling, of negotiating and renegotiating, of wheeling and dealing, squeezing an extra percent off the standard discount. Now, I would feel the satisfaction that comes from a job well done, but he was energized by it, and it summoned up all his creative juices at trade shows. I'd watch him visiting and tangling with all the major publishers. He came prepared with a few alternate strategies to get what he wanted and reduce his cost of goods by a percent or even two, and that's significant. He was in his glory doing that. I wasn't. Uh, I finally realized that to really be all in on this project, I would have to set aside the more ministerial side of my life and, and focus on being a better steward of all these retail resources. Now, both things were acceptable, but I felt in my bones that for me to stay in the retail world would have shaped me in ways that didn't feel quite right, given who I understood myself to be at that time. 
I went off on a personal retreat in July of 1985. Uh, this is when this was becoming exceptionally clear to me. And I told the Lord that if I still felt this way after Christmas, I would have to take that as a signal that it was time to find new work that was somehow better suited to who he had created me to be. Well, in the following October, just a few months later, a friend of mine called uh, who was resigning his pastorate, and he asked me if I would consider uh, candidating to pastor uh, the small church that uh, he was pastoring and I had occasionally taught at and had done some street evangelization with over many years. And I th- it was a surprise to me, but after the usual consultation with, of course, Sally and then close friends in the Lord, I said, yeah. Well, the congregation voted in December, and after Christmas, I began pastoring this church. My work there led to an offer to try out talk radio a year later, and eventually my responsibility as a pastor forced me to reconsider Jesus' will for his church, and that eventually led me you know, into full communion with the Catholic Church. You know, what we do in our jobs will shape us. I still look at roofs, and I still wonder about books and pricing and publishing and discounting. It has never left me. Um, but it would have been a mistake for me to have merely settled for, you know, a well-done job when I actually sensed that Christ was signaling a different way, more in keeping with who he had created and redeemed me to be. I look back, and I'm very grateful for what uh, back then and today seemed like pretty clear guidance. Had I not been honest with myself and considered first in thought, then in prayer, then in consultation with my spouse, then with close friends, and then by asking fellow Christians to confirm my gifts and calling that I believed I had received, then my life would have been very different for me and for my family for certain. And I would have been deprived of the work that I've been able to do with Abi Maria, with all the outstanding men and women at EWTN, and lastly, with all of you who have given me this platform. So, Instead of talking about Black Friday today, I'm going to continue to bask in the spirit of thanksgiving, thanking God, my friends at Ave Maria and EWTN, and you for giving me such an outstanding number of years. Thank you. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're on a football team, you don't want to just run up and down the field holding the ball and never cross into the end zone and get a touchdown. We want to reach our goal, but there are a lot of obstacles, discouragement, and challenges along the way. Jesus' voice is the one calling us to say yes to him, to live the life that he is calling us to live. We have to choose one way or the other, choose him or not. But if we choose him, we will be opposed. We're going to have people challenge what we believe or call us crazy. But Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me, to follow a beatitude. He's calling us to be like himself. He is the beatitudes. He doesn't just say, do what I say. He says, come follow me. He's with us every step of the way, transforming our weakness into strength. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. 
Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, John U. Bacon, is the author of several books. He's a well-respected writer at very many uh, venues, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Uh, he's written outstanding books before. He's joined us before on this program with his book, The Great Halifax Explosion, and also uh, his biography of John Saunders, Playing Hurt, My Journey from Despair to Hope. But the story he has to tell us today is one I had no idea was in his past. So you, let's just get it straight. You did play high school hockey for the Ann Arbor Huron River Rats. 
That is correct, and the mascot is true, by the way. We are the only river rats, I'm sure, in the nation. Uh, although you give me too much credit, Al, I was on the team. I did not play as much as I would have liked. But I was on varsity for three years, and as you know, still hold the record for the most games in a Huron uniform, 86, played all three years, with the fewest goals, zero, and that's very hard to beat. <laughs> All right, so you've got to tell me then, given that background, how did you get interested in, um, or was, or they were interested in you to, to, to come back and coach? What Two happened? fair questions, of course. Um, after college, I went to Culver Military Academy in Indiana, <laughs> and uh, military for the boys, but not for the girls. But uh, met an amazing guy there, Al Clark, a uh, very quiet coach, which is rare for hockey coaches, Phi Beta Kappa math major who started the program in 76 with an outdoor rink and 12 Hispanic kids who had never skated before. <laughs> and third year, they're state champs, and they keep on being state champs, and now they've he's won over 1,000 games. He's wow. the winningest high school coach in the nation. 25 NHL draft picks, 9 NHL players, 6 Olympians. Amazing Ooh. guy. So I had some experience there. I assisted coached. I'd been an assistant coach on the team and over here on in the early 90s. Then the job came up in 2000, and I put my hat in the ring. I wanted to do it for the same reason I think it motivates a lot of your listeners to do what they do, that I always felt the connection to it. I wanted to make a difference. Yeah. Um, I wanted them to have a program that would make them better people, and which is not often said about high school hockey programs, I think. Um, and I wanted them to remain attached to it yeah. uh, and, to, and to them. So why they wanted me, they didn't, is <laughs> the answer. The team was 0-22-3. For you non-sports fans out there, zero is where the wins go. So they had zero wins, 22 losses, and three ties. They were ranked the worst team in America, incredibly, <laughs> out of 1,000 teams wow. in 2000. And then yours truly, the worst team player in school history, he shows up. <laughs> the first vote, Al, was four for the other candidate and two for me. Mm -hmm. But uh, my allies would not stop until they flipped a vote. And then 3-3 three, three tie, the principal picked me because I had gone to Huron, but the players were not happy about it, and neither were the parents. <laughs> so we're walking into a pretty bad situation. Your dad says, uh, well, you know, when you're on the floor, you can't fall out of bed. <laughs> Which, exactly right. Which I thought was a great line. Hey, my dad does not get paid for motivational speeches, I'll say that. But uh, <laughs> but i got to say, uh, we all get knocked down fairly often. I guess the way of the world. Um, when that happens, my dad's phrase kind of helps me. When you're on the floor, you can't fall out of bed. This has got to get better. That's the message. I, you know, I, uh, I have not done a lot of teaching uh, at high school level, but I used to, every year I used to go teach at Southfield Christian School a week on the mm. Bible class. And I can remember uh, the first few years being kind of intimidated by high school students who were nonchalant about everything. It's mm -hmm. it hard, to, hard to elicit from them enthusiasm. Um, and I would imagine that from what you wrote in the book, the students that you had to work with uh, I mean, you were not bringing with you uh, a, a roster of uh, ringers, right? No, I, I was mean, not. You're not going to dump a bunch of kids. I cut nobody yeah. from the previous team. And uh, and I would imagine that if you got a 0-22-3 uh, record, um, they've learned how to adapt to failure. That's a tough culture to that, shake. i got to say, Al, and we've talked about most of my books the last 10 years, you always had, have insights that... I do not get elsewhere. And I do a lot of interviews for these things, so it's always impressive. <laughs> you. Um, yeah, you hit it, the nail on the head with Southfield Christian School. Um, and, yeah, what you just said, of course, uh, one of the hardest things was to get them to care. 
not to win games. Let's not worry about that. But yeah. to actually invest yourself. Because once you invest yourself, if you, if you don't care and you lose every game, well, so what? You're ironic, nonchalant, all this stuff. Yeah. But if you care and then you still lose, it's a lot harder. Yeah. So yeah. how do I get them to care? And as my captain said at the time, we were too cool to care. So <laughs> trying to get them to care. And the great advice came from Al Clark, my mentor at Culver, I mentioned. He said, the first thing you've got to do is to make it special to play for Huron. And yeah. I said, we're already the worst team in America. That's pretty special. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. The easiest way to make it special is to make it hard. And that is the exact opposite advice that everyone else has given me that about this generation is lazy and they're entitled. You've got to lower the bar. And corporations do this. You know, you need Taco Tuesdays and Casual Fridays and <laughs> right, right. Uh, beanbag chairs and all that. And his approach was the opposite. He said... If they know that they had to do something that not everybody would, would be willing to do just to make the team, then now it feels special. And then with a little guidance, they will enforce their culture themselves. Ah. And I, frankly, didn't have too many chances. What other ideas did I have? Right, 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 right. <laughs> We're on the floor. Uh, so I said, okay, what the heck, I'm doing that. And, uh, and it worked. Wow. And not one kid, we had workouts a week after school got out. So July, August, September, October three days a week in the weight room and on the track. Brutal, and I did them too. Yeah. Brutal workouts. We all got pretty well trashed in these things. Um, and not one player quit. And these were voluntary workouts. So it shows us that if we're not getting to guys and so on, yeah. you don't lower the bar, you raise it. Yeah. And yeah. now you feel special for having survived it. Um, you, you did a f few things there. Uh, it just struck me as just, just really smart. Um, you... You said, uh, be patient with results, not behavior. Mm -hmm. So you went after uh, certain things, uh, certain certain behaviors that you knew were going to pollute the, the, the environment that you were trying to create. Tell, give us an example of this. Sure. Um, came from, come from, sorry, it comes from Rob Palmer, a friend of mine who played for Michigan, and then played in the NHL for six or seven years. We're playing on a Tuesday night. He's retired. He's got his MBA since then. He's from Toronto. And he said, his dad told him as a kid, all you have to worry about is two things, work hard and support your teammates. Mm -hmm. And what's brilliant about that, and I know this is a faith-based show, same with your faith. Yeah. There are things you control and things you don't. We control those two things every day we wake up. Now, we can work hard and choose to work hard, choose to support our teammates. And that was also smart in my case because I had no idea if we're going to win any games. Who knows? You know, same guys. So maybe we're going to lose every game again. Right. But let's, let's, right. let's measure the, what we can control, and don't worry about what we can't. Yeah. So we start the season out, and we win three games in our first three games. We therefore tied the total wins for the two previous years combined. <laughs> so my dad was right about that one. Let's keep the bar low, and everyone's happy. And then we've got to play almighty Trenton, downriver Detroit. Yeah, yeah. They've won 14 state titles. USA Today called them the best high school team in the nation. Wow. They're that good. Final score is 13 to 2. I'll remind your listeners this is not football or basketball. <laughs> this is, this is hockey. hockey. Right. And so those come in increments of one. So uh, I knew their fight song by the end of the night. That's how often I heard it. So in the locker room, the guys are pretty upset and they're throwing their gloves and their sticks and saying this is as bad as last year and all this. And I said, hey, wait, I saw it. We got our butts kicked, you know, fair enough. But what are the two values of here in hockey? And we've been saying them all every day for four months. They mumble. Work hard, support your teammates. I said, no, no, what are they? We started yelling it back and forth. I said, okay, on that basis, how do we do tonight? Did you guys do those things? And they thought about it, and they thought, actually, we did. 
We worked hard the entire night. We didn't coast to the bench. Down 13 to 2. We didn't take the, the last three minutes off. Yeah. yeah. Easy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't point the finger at the goalie for, th- for 13 goals or the forwards for only scoring twice. Nothing negative, all positive, all game long. And I say, that's right. It will never be harder to do those two things than it is right now. It's never harder to keep your faith than when things are going wrong. <laughs> right, when it's going right, right, it's not that hard. Right, when right. it's going wrong, then it's hard. So do we keep our faith now in, in, our, in our values? And I said, gentlemen, it will never be harder than this. What you did tonight was heroic, truly heroic. We walk out with our heads held high, which allows us to define ourselves and now that the world define us. The school thought we were losers. Our opponents thought we were losers. We heard from the fans. We don't care. In our room, we're okay. Work hard, support your teammates. And then after a 10-game losing streak, we still won four more games at the end. We won seven games. We were the most improved team in school history after our first year. So it was a good start. How long before you uh, ended up beating Trenton? It took us, at the end of the second year, we're now 16-9-2. So we're the most... <laughs> We're the most improved team in school history two years in a row, Al. That's very hard to do. <laughs> My dad was right again. you got to start at the bottom to do that twice. So the sky was the limit, and we're playing Trenton again in the regional final at their place, packed house, and they're about to win another state title. We play them, though, and this time we're on fire. And uh, Herb Brooks, I called him up before the game. Herb Brooks is the coach who coached the American Olympic hockey team. Miracle. Yeah. Miracle on ice. Yeah. Uh, against the Soviets, still considered the greatest upset of all time, and probably was. I said, okay, Herb, he's a friend of mine from sports writing. Here's the deal. We're the Americans, they're the Soviets. (laughs) (laughs) How do we do this? And this applies directly to your listeners. He said with his Minnesota accent, Johnny, just tell him this. Above all, you got to believe. If you don't believe, nothing's possible. If you do believe, anything is possible. But it comes with a catch. Just because you believe... It's because you have faith and hope and belief and you work hard and your support teammates does not guarantee victory. Mm-hmm. The external world does not always cooperate. Right. But I guarantee you this. If you don't have those things, you have no chance. It's a lottery ticket. And your lottery ticket is hope and faith and belief. Yeah. And I told the guys that. They're all jacked up. And I let the seniors talk to the team. And I walked out and they're breathing fire. The final score was 3-2. to two. Trenton won. But we outshot them. And when the buzzer went... Their fans gave my guys a standing ovation. Wow. And from that point on, we played them tough years uh, three and four. We finally, in our fourth year, beat them at their rink. And our trainer, who had seen about 40 <laughs> losses over his 20-year career against those guys, started crying. I was going to say that. Had to, somebody had to break up oh, when that happened. It, oh, some of the players called their older brothers from the other teams, and they started crying yeah. at their colleges around the country. Uh, so, but the whole notion of faith and belief and hope, without them, you're lost. Um, you mentioned Herb Brooks, yes. uh, and I imagine you're probably pretty good at locker room uh, speeches. That's one of the few skills I have. <laughs> <laughs> How important is it that uh, you have a, be able to do the locker room speech? I always think it's important because I was, you know, I liked it and I paid attention to it. But you know what? It turns out it's not that important at all. Okay. So Al Clark, my mentor at Culver, was this quiet math department chairman who would say in his Eeyore kind of voice. Well, this would be a good one to win. It's like, <laughs> I'm not quite jacked up here, Coach. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of, you know, look at your priest. Uh, yeah. a, g- a good sermon, hey, I-, I love them. Yeah. But it's not what keeps your flock together. Exactly. It's yeah. caring about them and pushing them. Think about your favorite teacher. That's what you need to do. 
John Holtzgerber will come back, continue the conversation. My guest, John Bacon, a wonderful book called Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And I highly recommend it to you. Let Them Lead. We'll talk more on the other side of the break. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Whom does Jesus invite to enter the kingdom of heaven? The Catholic Catechism tells us he invites all to enter. Originally announced to the Israelites, the kingdom is now open to people of every nation. But to enter that kingdom, one must accept Jesus' word. The kingdom belongs to the poor and lowly with whom Jesus identifies. The poor and lowly means those who have accepted the kingdom with humble hearts. To the little ones, the Father is pleased to reveal what is hidden from the wise and the learned. Jesus makes active love toward the poor of every kind a condition for entering the kingdom. Jesus invites sinners into the kingdom and speaks of the joy in heaven over the repentance of just one sinner. Jesus' invitation to the kingdom comes in the form of parables. To enter the kingdom, mere words are not enough, however. Deeds are also demanded. One must give everything. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. I tell oftentimes an experience that I had at Divine Child when I was a young priest, one year ordained, first time I ever really saw the power of the Blessed Sacrament. And we simply exposed the Blessed Sacrament at the end of Mass one night. I encouraged people. I said, you know what? We've been in the habit of praying over people after Mass. I said, we're not going to do that this week. I'm just going to invite people to come on up and pray if they want to pray. And I put the Blessed Sacrament on the altar. I kneeled down. As I kneeled down, the church is in the sanctuary. The whole church. 
And as I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the people there, and I'm looking at Jesus under the appearance of bread there, I saw the Lord standing on the altar. And he's just standing there looking out at all the people. And then at a certain point, he turned towards me, and he just bowed. And he says, don't you see how easy this is? You don't have to do anything. You just have to put me out. You put me out, and I will work. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, John Ubacon. Uh, this is most recent book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. It really uh, really hooked me, and I love, I love the story here. Changing the culture is where you began. Mm-hmm. You went in there to change the culture, not necessarily uh, immediately elevate performance. I mean, you had them working hard. Right. But that was part of changing the culture. That was, I was more concerned by far with the culture than I was with the wins. Yeah. And the wins came, not a, not a ton, but seven wins the first year. Um, but I was not focused. If you start chasing wins, it's like chasing profit. Uh, you get lost. Yeah. And it's even like trying to be happy. I've known... When you, when you try to aim at happiness, you never quite get it. Right. When you do other stuff, you end up being happy. It, it, yeah, that's right. It's a byproduct. Of doing, <laughs> it's a yeah. byproduct, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, there are so many good lessons here. Um, you're dealing with high schoolers, and you have, chapter four, you have, make sure that you're the dumbest guy in the room. Uh, talk to me about <laughs> that, what that means in this context. That seems counterintuitive again, yeah. doesn't it? So, um, but yeah, you mentioned earlier, we focused on behavior and results. With the hiring process, I had great assistant coaches. Um, Warren Buffett, the famous billionaire, yeah, now sure. a great philanthropist, um, had a great, got a lot of great lines. But one of them is that uh, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> and what that relieves us of is the burden of trying to be the smartest guy in your hand up in class mm-hmm. and all this. Right. It's not your job. Your job is to figure out who is the smartest guy, hire that man or woman, and make sure they're on your team. Yeah. So my joke, and I had... I had uh, my assistant coaches. I was not a great player. Assistant coaches played in Sweden, played for the University of Michigan, played pro hockey, all oh, kinds of stuff. Okay. And uh, my joke was that my goal was to be the dumbest guy in the room, Al, and I greatly exceeded my expectations. <laughs> 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 but so long as they know who the head coach is and they still had respect for the authority, then you're okay. They need to be loyal? Two reasons I'd fire somebody. Lying to me or disloyalty. Yeah. Everything else we'll deal with. Yeah. That's true of the players also. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second year, you talk about building trust. Uh, so you're, you change the culture the first year. You build trust the second. Tell me uh, where you begin with that. You've already done some of that if you're changing yeah, the culture. Yeah, no question. Yeah. You can't do that without trust. But we've emphasized it more, you're right, second year. Uh, biggest thing you've got to do is get to know them. Uh, yeah. Al Gallup, who's now 96 years old, a World War II vet, great hero of mine, he said you can't motivate anybody you don't know. So get to know them on a personal level, and I think all great priests do this, great yeah. teachers do this. Yeah. Think about your favorite teacher. He or she knew your name, guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. Would stay after school. What's tough, all right, chances are they're never the easy ones who are your favorites. But uh, got to get to know them. And next thing you do is you start giving them more and more power over what's happening. And you'd be amazed how they raise their games. Really? If they know that they've got to lead the thing the next day, don't pay attention. Huh. Um, my mom was a grade school teacher. She's still around, but she lost her voice for a few months. And she had each kid read the book the next day. And they became far better readers than they ever had before because they would take the book home, practice it for three or four days, and show off in wow. front of their classmates. So I kept on putting them in charge of what's going on. We had a joke in the team. Leading by example is clearly vital. 
If you don't do that, you're a hypocrite, and no one's going to follow you, and they shouldn't follow you, right. frankly. Right. But that, for a real leader, I think is not nearly enough. We had a joke in our team. We've got a name for those who lead by example. They're called sophomores. Because <laughs> <laughs> all that means is you know your job, and you can do your job. It's why you're employed. It's why you have a you know, parking spot. It's why you have a jersey on my team. Your junior year, you've got to know your job, do your job, and know everyone else's job, too, in your senior year. You've got to know your job, do your job, know everyone else's job, and help them do their jobs better. As yeah. a senior, you're doing a job and a half to two jobs every day. Yeah. This is leading by coaching. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a let great them phrase. Coach. That's a great phrase. Exactly. Um, I have to say, I was impressed. I mean, you, your relationship with these uh, young men and now their families continues. Oh, yeah. It does. You go to the weddings, and you know you have an annual barbecue. Or? Yep, I got a summer barbecue at my place, which probably cost close to a thousand bucks. These guys are now thirty-five to forty years old. They're older than I was when I coached them uh, <laughs> twenty years ago, and I started very late. Al, I got married forty-nine years old and had a kid at fifty-one. So I'm truly blessed and. You had your first at 51. I did. I had my last at 50. (laughs) Well, that's pretty gutsy too, pal. uh, My wife assures me I have an only child. She's... (laughs) But anyway, we were very late. But my players' kids are, you know, 10 years old or 12 years old. So they come over and give me parenting advice, and I have to take it out. (laughs) Because they know more than I do about this. But we're still very much in touch, and I've been to most of their weddings. Um, and it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling that this still matters to them 16, 17 years after we stopped coaching and playing together. Did they help you with the book at all? They helped me a ton. And Al, by the way, he's a smart guy asking good questions. So, uh, <laughs> it's a real advantage. And this is very rarely true of leadership books. They usually come out right after the success of the CEO or whomever. Yeah. Uh, the mistakes aren't in there and, <laughs> and nor are the other voices. In this case, I did it so late and like getting married that, uh, that my mistakes are in here, a lot of them. And I was able to ask these guys, now, you know, 35, 37 years old. Now they work at Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they work at engineering firms. They work in, uh, at the universities and so on. I asked them, what did they remember? What ideas, what stayed with them, what insights, what stories? They gave me back, Al, 150 pages of amazing stuff. Wow. And I baked that into this, and they'd tell me when I'm wrong and when I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they also took away. And I got to tell you the greatly gratifying thing of all else. Um, the victories, even though we won a lot of games our third years, 17, 4, and 5, number 4 in the state, we passed 95% of the nation by then in the rankings. Wow. It's not what they talk about. They talk about the locker room. They talk about feeling safe. They talk about huh. that. Feeling safe. Feeling safe comes up a lot. Really? And that was one of my goals. What, did, what, what would that mean, that they were feeling secure on the team? or Yeah. That are true values. Work hard, support yeah. your teammates. That yeah. no one here is going to stab you in the back. Ah. Uh, no one here is not going to include you. Yeah. No yeah. one here is going to play favorites and do clicks and all this stuff. We got rid of all that. Um, imagine going to a workplace where you knew that everybody there was going to work hard and support you. Yeah. You want to work there. Yeah. And yeah. You're, and you're going to work better at that place. And you're, you're not going to look to leave either. So we had all that. And that these guys remember that, the values more than the victories, is, is greatly gratifying. That's from, that really is tremendous. Uh, you even cha- you, you changed the locker room around, didn't you? I sure did. Tell me I changed about that. a lot of things. That never would have occurred to me. So t- uh, talk to me. Yeah. Um, I set it up. If you don't set up your locker room the way you want as the coach, the teacher, your classroom, guess what happens? We, I've got ninth graders on the team and seniors. We have no JV for hockey. Okay. Um, no junior varsity. So you've got ninth graders who don't even shave, and you've got seniors <laughs> who are about to go to Afghanistan. Right. 
Right. I mean, right. or wherever. Um, so how do I make this a team? So you you separate the seniors. I made a compass of my my, my top four leaders yeah. and put them in the middle of the four walls uh, with the stalls. And then I put other guys around them, the young guys around them. Um, I'd break up cliques. I would make sure that nobody of the same grade was sitting next to each other. We've all got to get along. Then I stole a program from Japan called Senpai Kohai. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Mentor protege, basically. All their companies do it. Sony, Panasonic, Toyota, and so on. Even their hockey teams do it. And so I matched up uh, my upperclassmen, seniors and juniors, with uh, somebody in the underclass, sophomores and freshmen, to break these barriers. And uh, so you'd have a partner, basically. You ate dinner with that guy at team dinners. You sat on the bus together for traveling on the road. You'd room together in a hotel. Happened a couple times a year. And I didn't know what they're going to respond to that. And they loved it so much that they asked me the next year, are we going to do it again? And those mentors and mentees end up in each other's weddings. Um, they're still in touch. Uh, so that's a great way to break down barriers that you might have, like between sales and service. Yeah. Between veteran employees and young employees. It happens in all you know, workspaces, I think. Uh, and you've got to break it down. Uh, you pointed something out in the book that probably a lot of other people know, but it never quite hit me. And that is you can be an outstanding player and be a lousy coach. It usually happens. Yeah. Because guys like me know how to motivate rotten players. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned Ted Williams, for instance. No, not much success. Yep. Magic Johnson, not right. much success. Great players, though. Right. Yeah. And Casey Stengel. Casey Stengel, who the old New York rank Yankees manager who won, I think, the most World Series of any manager. He said, I was not very good at baseball as it is a game of skill. <laughs> <laughs> But he's a, he's a great manager. Yeah. Uh, so don't let that, if you're not a great salesperson, does not mean you should not be the sales manager. Right. For example. Right. There's not, different skills. There are different skills. Yeah. And we should hire accordingly. Yeah. So. Um, you, all talk, you talk about making peer pressure work for you. Mm-hmm. That, that, again, strikes me as brilliant. I, um, tell me how the, you can't get rid of it. That's the sad so fact. It, you know, it's going to be there. So mm-hmm. how do you make it work for you? So once I conceded defeat, <laughs> that okay, peer pressure's here. How can I reshape this? Um, I realized okay, they will often care more about what they think about each other than what I what I think. Oh. So so once I put seniors in charge of a lot of things, the freshmen listened a lot better to them than they did to me, oh, because I'm just some old guy yelling stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the senior, he's one of the cool guys in the school. He's one of the older guys. He's an athlete and all this stuff. Uh, and the freshman, who's that? So if the senior tells you, hey, tuck in your shirt, from the senior, it's a lot more important than from me. So yeah. I would have, we had green shirts and gold ties. Those are our school colors. And very few high school teams do that. And we look pretty sharp getting off a bus. But I had the seniors at the end of the bus by the driver inspect all the guys leaving the bus, not me. So the seniors are in charge. Whoa, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. The seniors are in charge of, uh, that's my mom and dad calling. Hi, mom and dad. <laughs> uh, the seniors are in charge of attire and appearance. So they'd be the ones to check off. And the, a ninth grader will listen to the senior better than me. So let's use that working together. And I'd explain about bad penalties, for example. Yeah. You're not letting me down. You know, I, I'll coach you anyway. You're making your teammates work harder because you're taking dumb penalties. Yeah. It's affecting them more than me. And w- once you're all linked together as one, it works differently. You know, I'm amazed you got uh, teenagers interested in uh, monitoring each other on attire and appearance. Normally, when I was growing up, that meant downward, <laughs> deviance <laughs> downward. But you, they, these, they 
this worked for make a strong uh, unity for the team, uniformity of dress, and it worked. It worked. Because, look, if you're a Navy SEAL, if you're a Marine, you care about the uniform. Yeah. Uh, I assume that priests do as well, of course. Yep. Uh, and you don't want a guy in your flock uh, looking sloppy because yeah. you represent us. Yeah. And this is just what Al Clark told me, that once they know that it's special to be on your team, they will start enforcing that themselves. So they did it with enthusiasm. They took pride in their appearance uh, without me having to say very much at all after the first year. That was their domain. You win, you lose. Who gets credit? How do you huh. take credit? How do you deal with the reality of winning and losing? All right, folks, here's the bad news. Uh, when you lose, it's your fault. And when you win, it's theirs. <laughs> so okay. that's all I can tell you. If you lose, you didn't have the right guys out there. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. And you got to take it with the Ann Arbor News or whatever your publication is. Um, when you win, this comes from Herb Brooks again, uh, 1980, Miracle on Ice, when Al Michael says, do you believe in miracles? The greatest upset ever. Yeah. Al, I'm sorry, um, Herb Brooks, looked up at the scoreboard, looked at his players with great pride and admiration and respect, almost tears in his eyes. And then he leaves the scene. And he walks underneath the stands and goes into a locker room, a public locker room, and cries in one of the stalls. Because um, he said, I did not score a single goal in 1960 when he, almost, when he almost made the team and got cut. They won the gold medal. I didn't score a single goal this time either. No. And I didn't score a goal as a player, Al. <laughs> I didn't score a goal as a <laughs> yeah. coach. So it's all theirs. When you get a trophy and they say, Coach Bacon, get your trophy. No, you don't. You put your hands in your pocket. You nod at your captain. He goes, he goes to get his trophy, and you walk off. And look, really, it's being a parent. You can't take credit for your yeah. kids' grades. Yeah. You can't take credit for their success. Uh, if they fail, sadly, you have to, you have to talk to the principal. Um, but let it be theirs, and they'll, they'll work far harder for you otherwise. And by the way, also, if you're leading anything, if you're the, the chair of your department, the coach of your team, if your team's winning, you're going to get credit anyway, whether you like it or not. Um, let me see. I hope we have time. Oh. Can you stay with me just a minute? Sure. I Normally, I'd wrap this up here, but I want to see if I can get some time uh, to talk uh, about uh, Coach Pierre. So, all right. My guest, John U. Bacon, is author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. I'm Al Cresta. We will be back. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession. And when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? (laughs) 
I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom webinar. That's catholichom webinar. See you there. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, John U. Bacon. Let them lead. Unexpected lessons in leadership from America's worst high school hockey team, Coach Lapper. Coach Lapper was 19 years old when I hired him, the youngest assistant coach in the league, maybe the state. The players loved him so much, they named him the unsung hero of the team. I've never seen that, players voting a coach for yeah. a player's award. Uh, they loved him. I loved him. He was the key. Uh, and then on June 25th of 2003, he dies in a car accident. Uh, very tragic to say the least. He was young. Um, the players at his funeral um, took off their gold ties and unbidden by me, their idea, and draped their gold ties on his casket because those gold oh. ties represented us at our best. Yeah. And I'm about to cry again. And they just felt that Lapper was us at our best. Yeah. We loved him. Well, that's a powerful way uh, to also end the book and end the interview. John, thanks. Al, thank you. you. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.